I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. A great model of faith in the 19th century, a fellow by the name of George Mueller, said this, It is the very time for faith to work when sight ceases. The greater the difficulties, the easier for faith. As long as there remain certain natural prospects, faith does not get on nearly as easily as when all natural prospects fail. What was he saying? Faith thrives on difficult situations. Faith thrives on the impossible. Faith increases when the odds against me increase. And the reason that that can happen is because the object of faith is not our circumstances. The object of our faith is God. And when my faith is grounded in God and God's Word, I'm not intimidated by circumstances. I'm not influenced by the situation. I'm not inhibited by the odds. Nothing is too great. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too difficult. Why? Because my faith is in God. And God is greater than any circumstance. God is greater than any situation. God is greater than any difficulty that comes into your life or mine. You see, the times that you find your faith weaker than your circumstances are the times that you are looking at your circumstances rather than looking at God. Arthur Pink says there are three degrees of faith. There's faith which receives, faith which reckons, and faith which risks. Faith which receives is when we come empty-handed to the Lord for salvation. Faith that reckons is when we count on God to keep His promises. And faith that risks is when we dare something for the Lord. Now most of us know very little about the faith that risks. Most of us know very little about the faith that takes chances for God. Most of us know very little about courageous faith. Our motto is, look before you leap. And that's okay as long as you look at God and leap. But most of us look at our circumstances and we look and we look and we look and we never leap. We never take a chance. We never risk anything. Well, the writer of Hebrews is giving us examples in Hebrews chapter 11 of people who had faith that risks. Faith to trust God no matter what the situation. Faith to trust God no matter what it cost. And this morning he presents to us a classic example of that in verse 30. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now Jericho was a tremendous fortress. It was located near the Jordan River at the entrance to the land of Canaan. And it was a huge walled city. In fact, when the spies were sent into the land in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 28, here's what the, they said. They said, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. 
The walls of the city go all the way up to heaven. You see, when the walls fell down, these were not picket fences. These were huge walled fortresses. But they fell down. And how did they fall down? By faith. Now what's interesting is that in chapter 11, verse 29, he tells us how Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt by faith. In verse 30, he tells us how Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan by faith. You know how many years take place between verse 29 and 30? Forty years. But they were years of disobedience and grumbling and complaining. They were not years of faith. Those 40 years don't make it into Hebrews chapter 11. They don't make it into the hall of faith. They do show up in the book of Hebrews. We already read about them at the end of chapter 3. They are an example of unbelief. But when we come to verse 30, the unbelievers have died off in the wilderness and the children of Israel under their new leader Joshua crossed the Jordan River. And you remember how they crossed the Jordan River? The same way they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And when they got across the Jordan River, the Bible says the river began to flow again and overflowed its banks. It was flood season. So they crossed the Jordan and there was no turning back. It was kind of like they had burned their bridges behind them. So they had the roaring Jordan River behind them and they had Jericho standing in front of them. This huge fortress. That's quite a situation to be in. The circumstances didn't look very good. The odds are not in Israel's favor. They have crossed the Jordan River. They're facing this huge, formidable fortress, Jericho. And who are these guys? They are a bunch of sons of slaves who have spent their entire lives wandering around in the wilderness. You would probably match them up to say maybe they could beat the Boy Scouts. So they're standing here before this huge, formidable fortress. And as I described that scene this morning, you may be sitting here saying, you know what? That sounds like my situation. Well, you know what? I hope it does sound like your situation because it should sound like your situation. You see, this whole scene is a picture to us of the Christian life. We have, as they have, come out of Egypt, come out of the world. And we should not be content to wander around in the wilderness, which is a picture of a carnal Christian life. We should cross over the Jordan River into the land of God's promises, which is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And in order to do that, you have to face a Jericho. Now let me stop right now before we go into this message and ask you, because I want it to be on your mind, what is your Jericho? What is it that you need to gain victory over in your life? What walled fortress is standing between you and victory? Maybe for you it's an external fortress. Maybe it's a trial. It's a marriage problem. It's a financial problem. It's a work problem. Or, or maybe for you, you wish you had work that you could have a problem with. So you've got an external Jericho. 
Or maybe for you, it's an internal Jericho. Maybe for you, it's a temptation. Maybe for you, it's something inside. It's, it's fear or bitterness or anger or greed or lust. And that's something you just can't seem to overcome. And it's grown up in your life. And it's like this huge fortress in your life. And you can't seem to get victory over it. As we go into this message, I want you to define what your Jericho is today. Because I want to take you back to Joshua chapters 5 and 6 this morning. And I want to pick out of these two chapters four steps to victory. I've listed them in your bulletin. Step number one is priorities. The first step is getting back to basics. You see, before they march in and take the land, God has them reset their priorities. And there are three priorities that God has them reset in Joshua chapter 5. The first priority we see in chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth, which means the hill of foreskins. And I'm not going to develop that picture for you. Verse 4, This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. You see, while they were in the, the wilderness, Israel had neglected circumcision. Now what was circumcision? That was the sign of their covenant relationship with God. That was the sign of their faith. That was what identified them as the people of God. That's what set them apart from the Canaanites and the Philistines. That's what set them apart as, as the children of God. And in that sense, the parallel to circumcision today would be baptism. Patrick was baptized this morning. What was he doing? He was identifying himself with Jesus Christ. When he went down into the waters and came back up, he was saying, I am dead to the old Patrick. And I am identified with Jesus Christ in the new me, the new creation. I have a new identity in Jesus Christ. That's what was happening here in the wilderness. And this event is further amplified when God tells Joshua in verse 9, notice, he said, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means rolled away. Reminds me of a song that I sang when I was a kid. I don't know if you know this song. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Every burden of my heart rolled away. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. I know the motions. Every burden of my heart rolled away. Every sin had to go neath the crimson flow. Hallelujah, rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. You see, he's saying what's happened is Egypt is rolled away and you have a new identity 
You are new people. You are marked as the people of God. That's what was happening in the wilderness. And of course, that's what needs to happen in each one of our Christian lives. In fact, there's a dimension to this that I think you would overlook except that he mentions it to us in verse 8. Notice what it says in verse 8. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. This, is, this was a surgical procedure. And it took time for them to heal. Now, don't you think that this is an odd time to circumcise the entire Israeli army while they are in plain view of their enemies at Jericho. So for at least three, maybe four, maybe five days, they are disabled, sitting in view of their enemy. It's quite a picture. Reminds me of Genesis 34 when Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by Shechem the Hivite prince, and afterwards he offered to marry her, and her brother said, well, we'll let you marry her under the one condition that you have all the males in your city circumcised. So they agreed. And Genesis 34, 25 says, on the third day when they were in pain, two of Dinah's brothers came into the city and killed them all. You see, to be circumcised made you disabled. And here's Israel, right? in the shadow of Jericho and they're all disabled which is again a picture of the fact that in our own strength we are disabled we are marked out as the people of God we are helpless in and of ourselves our identity is who we are in him and then there's a second priority that comes out here Not, number one priority is who they are Number two priority is who God is. Look at verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day on the month of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. While they were in the wilderness, Israel had neglected the Passover. And we only know of two other times they had celebrated the Passover. They celebrated it on the first occasion in Egypt, that first time, then they celebrated it one year later at Sinai. And we're not told that they ever celebrated it again in the wilderness, but now God times it just so that they cross the Jordan River at Passover time and they celebrate the Passover. Now what was the Passover? The Passover was the time when they remembered how God had delivered them from Egypt. It was the time when they remembered who God is, that God is their deliverer. And of course, the parallel for us today is the Lord's Supper, is communion. What do we do in communion? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We go back to the cross and we remember how that Jesus Christ is our deliverer. What's the lesson? In the shadow of an intimidating enemy fortress, the first priority is not war the first priority is worship. Before God has them go forward, He has them go back and remember who He is. So priority number one is who they are, marked out as the children of God. Priority number two is who God is. He is the great deliverer. 
And then priority number three is how they are nourished. Notice what it says in verse 11. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. God took away the manna and let them eat milk and honey. God changed their diet and let them enjoy the full sustenance of the promised land. Now Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 says that God gave them manna so that they would learn to live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so what God gave them to eat is really a picture of spiritual nourishment. And God is saying at this point in time, you no longer need to be spoon-fed manna. Now you can step into the land and you can enjoy all the blessings and the nourishment that I've provided for you in a victorious life. So the first step to victory is priorities. Now how do we apply this to our lives? Well, if you're facing a Jericho, you need to get back to basics. Basic number one, who you are in Jesus Christ. You are not in the battle as macho you. Because if you are, you will lose. You are in the battle as helpless you, disabled before the enemy, ill-equipped to fight the battle, but marked out as the child of God. Second priority is who God is. He is your deliverer. And we need to focus on the fact that that's what He will do for us in our lives. And then thirdly, you need to focus on where you get your nourishment from. In fact, you need to be sure that you are getting new, fresh nourishment from God. Let me ask you a question. And don't answer out loud. What has God said to you this week through His Word? Have you got some ink that hasn't dried yet on the pages of your Bible because God showed you a verse and you underlined it or He showed you a phrase or you circled a word or you wrote something in the margin because God spoke to you this week? You see, some of us as Christians are living off stale old manna that we got years ago. And we need a fresh nourishment from God. Some of us are being spoon-fed. Some of you come here every Sunday and this is it. This is the only time you open your Bible. You're here like, Dan, stick it in. And I go, you know, here it comes. This is not the only nourishment you should be getting. We have the privilege of the land. We have the bounty of the land. God has given us milk and honey. We need to go out and be nourished. If you are facing a Jericho, you need to get God's nourishment so that you're prepared for battle. We need to get back to basics. Number one step is priorities. Step number two is prayer. Notice chapter 5 and verse 13. 
Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of the host. I'm sorry, captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. On the night before the battle of Jericho, I just kind of imagine that Joshua had a difficult time sleeping. So he went out for a walk. In fact, verse 13 says he was by Jericho. So he had walked over by Jericho. Maybe he's checking out the city one last time. Maybe he's going over last-minute details of his battle strategy in his mind. Maybe he's envisioning ladders and battering rams and archers and foot soldiers, and he's trying to sort of uh, go over the details of the battle. And he looks up and he sees a man with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua doesn't recognize him. And Joshua says, are you on our side or their side? And this soldier says, neither. You see, he says, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. Now this soldier identifies himself as the captain of the host of the Lord. Now who is this? Well, some Bible teachers say that this is one of the mighty angels like Michael or Gabriel. But I think this is one of those rare pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. And I think we have two clues to tell us that. Clue number one is Joshua's reaction. When Joshua realized who was before him, he fell face down in worship. Whenever you see an angel in the Bible, he tells people, don't worship me. Remember Revelation 19 when the Apostle John was being escorted around heaven? He was so overwhelmed by what he saw that he fell down to worship the angel and the angel had a heavenly fit and said, stop, get up, don't worship me. But this commander in Joshua chapter 5 accepts Joshua's worship, which tells me he's God. And not only do we get the clue of Joshua's reaction, but we also get the clue of the captain's command. He told Joshua to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Does that sound familiar? Very same words God used with Moses at the burning bush. And what made the ground holy? The fact that God was there. Jesus appeared several times in the Old Testament. Remember, remember when uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, and King Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth man standing in the flames, and he said, he appears like the Son of God. Who was that fourth man in the flames with them? It was Jesus. And I believe that this is Jesus standing before Joshua here in Joshua chapter 5. When Peter drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told him to put it away. And he said, don't you know I could command 12 legions of angels to rescue me? You see, Jesus is the commander of the armies of the Lord. And what's the lesson for Joshua? On the eve of the battle of Jericho, when he thinks that he is in charge of the army of God's people, he discovers that he is not the captain after all. You see, this is Joshua's burning bush experience. Are you facing a Jericho? What you need is not reinforcements. What you need is not more weapons. What you need is not more know-how. What you need is a holy encounter with the living Lord. You see, your battles are won in prayer. What I like here is that when Joshua fell on his face before the Lord, the Lord told him that the battle was already won. Look at chapter 6 and verse 2. He says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Past tense. It's already over. I've already won the battle. I hope that you have discovered that your battles are fought and won in prayer. There's a great example of this in Exodus chapter 17 where Moses was still leading Israel and Joshua was his captain. And they were involved in a battle against the Amalekites in the valley of Rephidim. And Moses was up on the mountain watching the battle. And whenever he lifted his hands in prayer, they were winning. And whenever he dropped his hands and stopped praying, they began to lose. And so Moses had Aaron and Hur stand beside him and help hold up his hands in prayer. And Exodus 17, 13 says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. The paraphrase would be, he kicked the living daylights out of those guys. But the real battle wasn't fought in the valley. The real battle was fought on the mountain in prayer. One of our favorite hymns is Victory in Jesus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Great words. But you know, it's one thing to sing about victory in Jesus it's another thing to experience that victory. 
A.W. Tozer said, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. Ouch. You know, I have to confess that I'm prone to forget that the battle is won in prayer. And sometimes I'm so anxious to rush headlong into the battle that I'm not spiritually prepared. Sometimes I'm so anxious to learn that I engage my mind, but I fail to engage my heart. Sometimes I'm so anxious to accomplish spiritual tasks that I make myself the captain. And that's why this is such a great lesson for me in the shadow of Jericho. Spiritual warfare and spiritual life requires spiritual preparation. Are you facing the Jericho? Before you go to battle, go to prayer. But understand that prayer is not me getting God to win the battle my way. It's God getting me to do it His way even when it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes we can sum up our prayer time as God, please be on my side. Right? I've got my prayer list. I want God to do it my way, and so I tell Him. Do it this way, do it that way, do it this way, do it that way. Sometimes our prayer life is simply us saying, God, please be on my side. But you see, God doesn't take my side. God takes over. And that's why I need to fall on my face before Him. And I need to take off my shoes. Prayer is not me saying, God, be on my side. Prayer is God saying, you get over on my side. And that takes us humbling ourselves before Him in prayer. Third step is perseverance. After promising the victory in chapter 6 and verse 2, the Lord lays out the strategy in verses 3 to 5. I'm not going to read it because you already know it. But the Lord says, Take the Ark of the Covenant and seven priests playing trumpets of ram's horns and walk around the city one time each day for six days without saying a word. Then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times and at Joshua's command, everyone shout and the walls will fall down. I'd love to have seen Joshua's expression as he's writing this down. And I would love to see him as he, as he goes into the battle strategy tent. I assume they had one. You know, it's always a tent and a little table and a map. He goes in there and he's got his generals and his colonels and he says, I'm going to tell you what the battle strategy is. In fact, better yet, let me, let me just draw it for you. It looks like this. Around and around and around and around and around. We're going to walk and play trumpets and shout. That's the plan. 
Do you ever wonder why God had them walk around Jericho 13 times and not just one time? Why, why didn't they just walk around once, shout, boom, wall spot? Why did it take seven days? Why did it take 13 laps? Well, I thought of two reasons. You're probably fortunate I didn't think longer about this. Reason number one, I think God wanted to teach them a lesson about power. You see, every day as they walked around the city of Jericho, they had to be thinking, you know what? We can't beat these guys. You know what? The spies are right. These walls do go up to heaven. You know what? This place is intimidating. And each day as they walked around, the lesson became clearer and clearer and clearer. We can't beat these guys in our power. We need to depend on the Lord's power. That's an important lesson. So the first was a lesson about power. And you know, let me, let me add this. One of the things that God is teaching you when He puts trials in your life, or fortresses in your life, or Jerichos in your life. He's trying to teach you a lesson about power. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10? He said, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, with Jerichos. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have an important lesson to learn, and that is that the power doesn't lie in me. The power lies in the Lord. But then there's a second lesson, and that's a lesson about perseverance. Gilgal, where they were camped, was about an, an hour's walk from Jericho, and according to archaeological ruins, it would have taken about two hours to walk around the city of Jericho. So that would mean each day they walked an hour to Jericho, two hours around, and an hour home. That's four hours of walking. Guys, this is like shopping for six straight days. You know how tired you get? We're just walking, walking, walking. That's what they were doing for six straight days. And then on the seventh day, they would have had to walk for 14 hours to walk seven times around the city. So when the walls finally fell down, they were totally exhausted. Which again is the great lesson. They were too weak to fight. God had to fight for them. See, this was a lesson in perseverance. And I would suggest to you that God is trying to teach you the same lesson through your trials, through your fortresses, through your Jerichos. Romans 5.3 says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We glory in Jerichos. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various Jerichos, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance. You know, God's plans don't always make sense. In fact, I would say that they rarely make sense. Does prayer make sense to you? That I can 
win the battle on my knees in my closet? Does that make sense to you? Does it make sense to you that if you want to be first, you have to be last? Does it make sense to you to turn your other cheek? Does it make sense to you that if you want to save your life, you have to lose it? Those are God's battle plans. And as you sit here this morning, God may be telling you to keep circling your Jericho. And you may be saying, you know, I've done this and done this and done this day after day after day. This is getting monotonous. Like the movie Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And God is saying, perseverance. Keep going. What if Israel had rebelled after three days? What if they had quit after twelve and a half laps? No victory. See, the steps to victory are priorities. Getting back to basics. Prayer. Getting on your knees. Perseverance. Finishing the last lap. And then fourth is praise. Notice chapter 6 and verse 16. At the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. Past tense. It's a done deal. The Lord has already given you the city. Now, let me add a footnote. Now, I want you to get this clearly. As a Christian, you are not fighting for victory. You, you are fighting from victory. Did you get that? You are not fighting for victory, hoping to win. You are fighting from victory. Jesus already won the war. And we fight on the basis of His victory over sin and death and hell. In fact, victory is your birthright as a child of God. Romans 8.37 says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, how? Through Him who loved us at the cross. Past tense. It's a done deal. Now the shout in Joshua 6.16 is not a groan of exasperation after seven laps around the city. It's not a shout of intimidation to scare the enemy. It's a shout of celebration. Because Joshua says, shout because the Lord has given you the city. You see, this is a shout of praise. It's easy to praise God after He delivers you. Most of us do that. Whew, thanks God. When the children of Israel came through the Red Sea, they got to the other side, and Exodus chapter 15 is their song of praise to God because He delivered them. But I would suggest to you that what happens here in Joshua chapter 6 is a greater form of praise because the shout of joy went up before the walls fell down. Israel was praising the Lord not for what He had just done, but for what He was just about to do. So let me ask you something. Have you 
encircled your Jericho with praise? Even when you've been walking around your Jericho for day after day after month after year and you haven't seen anything happen, have you encircled your Jericho with praise? Have you ever said with Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the field and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Israel gave a shout of praise and the walls fell down and the people rushed into the city and my Bible doesn't even say they were surprised. They expected it. They anticipated it. Why? Because God said it and they believed it. Their faith was in God and His Word rather than their circumstances. How about you? Have you got any Jerichos confronting you today? If so, how are you handling them? Are you collapsing? Are you running away? Are you trying to work it out yourself? Or are you trusting God and obeying God and expecting Him to work? Robert Moffat was a missionary who labored preaching the gospel for years among the Bekwanas in Africa. He preached for years and not one single person got saved. Years of ministry, nobody responded to the gospel. That's a Jericho. His friends in England wanted to encourage him somehow, so they wrote to him and said, can we send you a present well, what, what can we send you to encourage you in your ministry? What would you like? While not one person had responded to faith in Jesus Christ, he said, what I would like would be a communion set. And so, about three months later, when the communion set arrived, a dozen converted natives sat down with him for the Lord's Supper. You see, that's faith in the face of a Jericho. We all have Jerichos. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.4, Our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are the steps to destroying a fortress? Number one is priorities. Some of us need to get back to the basics. Who we are as the children of God. Who God is as our deliverer and where we get our sustenance from. God wants to give us new, fresh nourishment from His Word. Secondly is prayer. The real warrior starts on his knees. Are yours calloused? Third is perseverance. Maybe you've been encircling your Jericho for what seems like an eternity, and you're thinking about giving up. Finish the last lap. And fourth is praise. Shout for joy because the victory has already been provided for you. If you look in Jeremiah or, or Joshua chapter 6 and verse 17, notice what it says. 
The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Why? Because to the victor goes the spoil, the spoils, and he is the victor. He's the one who gets all the praise. We're going to close our service this morning by praising the Lord. I'm going to have the praise team come back and we're going to sing together. Whatever your Jericho is today, let's praise the Lord in advance for the victory He's already provided and is going to work out in your life. As we stand and sing together, I'm going to ask Patrick, who was baptized, to come forward. Uh, I'm going to ask those who are interested in joining the church to come forward today. Anybody who would like to have someone pray with you, you're invited to come as well. Let's stand and really praise the Lord together.